Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. Here today with a very special guest, Milad Gill, and my uh, very special co-host, Anusha uh, Rawl. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Ah, thanks for having us. Awesome. So, Elon, you are a uh, serial entrepreneur, uh, angel investor, having invested in 19 companies worth a billion dollars or more. How do you sort of think about your mission? What motivates you and what sort of ties the you know, thread of your career together? Yeah, I guess there's a couple things. First and foremost, I, I'm a strong believer in technology as sort of a force for good or, you know, a force for change in all sorts of different ways. And I think that's driven by a big sense of optimism. So, you know, I'm one of those people who believes that the world is increasingly becoming a better place. If you look back 20, 30 years and you look at different stats around infant mortality or the proportion of the global population that's living in abject poverty, things have gotten dramatically better. Um, and I think technology is one of those forces that's really driven positive change in the world. And so, you know, fundamentally, a lot of my drivers are asking, how can I do things that are, when all said and done, valuable to humanity or doing good things for the world? Yeah. And how have you thought about where, so you want to, you know, technology, how have you thought about how you can make the biggest impact relative to your unique skills? Yeah, I think it's evolved over time. I think in the early days, it was all around, being an operator and uh, starting businesses or running uh, businesses at scale, I think more recently it's morphed into a mix of two things. You know, one is on an ongoing basis, occasionally starting companies, and then in parallel continue to invest or support the next generation of founders or entrepreneurs. I think there's a really interesting framework that's sometimes used where, you know, people talk about concentric rings of life, right? Early on in life, you're focused on yourself and your education. And then later you're focused on work and family. And then after that, you're supposed to focus on society. And then eventually, at least in some, you know, philosophies with underpinnings in Hinduism and others, eventually you're really supposed to focus on uh, meditation and the spiritual side of things. And sort of you become a sadhu and you go out into the, you know, live in a cave or whatever. So, you know, I kind of ascribe to that sort of those concentric rings of life where as you as you sort of change over time, you take on more and more of those things. So 10 years from now, Buddhism? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to be sitting at some Zen temple uh, on a silent retreat or something. Yeah, but, but uh, are you serious? Actually, I'm curious. If you look at, you know, for example, you yeah. see the boy and he says, I'm measure my career by the amount of IPOs. Yeah. 10 years, 20 years And Barry Sessions. Those are the two things. Exactly. You measure them. Yeah. And 10, 20 years from now, yeah. I'm still going to be going to camp every day and have yeah, yeah. IPOs. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Do you have a certain metric by which you, uh, like, uh, you know, our goal, like, I'm trying to hit this, uh, and more, more importantly, I guess, 10, you, if you look at your future, how do you imagine you're working different at all? Just what you do. Yeah, you know, the, the one thing that I've found consistently is that it's impossible to really predict the future effectively outside of, like, three to four years. And so I think there's a great saying that uh, less happens than you think in two years and more happens than you think in five years. Yeah. And by the time you hit 10 years, if you think back 10 years in terms of, what were the dominant internet services or what were the important trends or how are you thinking about politics of the world? Yeah. Things have shifted radically just over the course of a decade. And I think similarly for my own life, I don't know that I would have anticipated that 10 years ago that this is what I'd be doing. And similarly, I don't want to presuppose what I'm going to be doing 10 years from now. I think I'll just sort of, um, I have certain goals and things I want to accomplish, but I, I think also most careers tend to be organic. Yeah. It is interesting. One thing to highlight, you have one side of thing. 
probably you know, go back to me for a second. You keep a full time investor, and they maybe will incubate a company once a year, once every few years, and then be chairman of that of that company. And then you have on the other side, you have people who are is white companies, very high volume in number of companies. It seems that you are uh, you know, pretty pretty concentrated with, with some some uh, portfolio, but then also that you get involved in some sort of um, quasi if not official chairman like way in, in different companies and, and funds. Longevity or, or other other sort of funds or private or companies like that. How do you sort of think about the chairman role, uh, or, or you're just being more involved than a, than a VC, but less involved than you know maybe Keith uh, Oakner or something, or there's someone who's sure. Yeah. yeah, the chairman role, sort of whatever you define it to be, and I think it takes on a lot of different forms, and it also depends on when you get involved with the life cycle of the company. In the context of, um, you know, there's three things that I'm chairman of right now. One of them is Color, which is a company I co-founded and I was CEO there for about three years. And then my co-founder, Altman, took over almost three years ago at this point. Um, the second one is Electric Capital, which is a crypto hedge fund, which is run by Vichel Garg and Curtis Spencer. And so the chairman role there is a bit more of an honorific. I help where I can, but it's it's really their their gig. And then there's a company called Spring Discovery, which I really helped, I don't know to call it incubate or... or you know, support in the early days, um, which was really driven by Ben Caymans, who's the founder and CEO there. And there, the chairman role is, um, you know, really being a, a very strong sounding board for Ben, but also in the early days, helping with, you know, uh, pulling together some of the science and some of the approach that the company was thinking about. One thing I want to transition to is something you've thought a lot about, which is markets. So let me talk a little bit about how your sort of evolution and how you've approached markets, thought about markets as, a, as an investor yeah, I think a lot of investors, um, I, I should say, especially early stage investors, you know, seed investors will say that the single most important thing for a company is the founders. And if you have great founders, you'll have a great company. And unfortunately, I've seen many great founders crushed by a terrible market. <laughs> and so I'm much more of sort of the um, Andy Rackleff, who was a co-founder of Benchmark, um, his point of view, which is that markets are really the dominant determinant of whether companies will succeed or fail. And really, it's about how good of a market are you in and then how are you executing in that market. And so for me, the number one and number two criteria for a startup are market and market. And then number three would be um, the founders, you know, which obviously are really important. And then lastly, um, you know, is it founders that are ethical? Are they good to work with? You know, if they call me at 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday, well, I want to talk to them, you know, things like that. And so life is short and you want to work with good people. And so quality of founders and sort of ethics of founders, I feel, is separable because yeah. some people kind of separate those. And what do you say to the pushback that if they're really great founders, they can, can our change the market that they're in? It's rare. I mean, people can obviously change market. The problem is that most people view it as being enormous on cost. So when they tend to pivot, they'll pivot within the market they're already in. And if they're in a bad market, it just doesn't really help them versus yeah. pivot into a completely new market. So. You see true cross-market pivots as being extremely rare. Um, obviously, Stuart Butterfield has done it twice. He started two gaming companies. One became Slack and one became Flickr. And so if, if you're going to bet on somebody to pivot, you should probably bet on him. But some of the things that people point to as pivots, you know, an example may be Instagram. And I wasn't involved with the early days of Instagram. But, you know, Bourbon, as far as I understand it, was sort of a local social photo app. Right. And they edited it down into a photo-only app with filters, which my sense is they already had some form of. And so that's not really a pivot. That's just kind of editing a product. Yeah. And so I think some of the things that are pointed to as pivots as well are just, just good product editing. Yeah. And you, we have an accelerator, like my founder, and the question we ask ourselves is, if it's a really talented founder, but we don't like the space, should we be making those bets? Um, or should we categorically not, not make those bets? Do we, it's dependent on how coachable they are. 
What's your view there? I mean, personally, as an investor, I've recently started experimenting with just funding, you know, two smart people just because it's out of my comfort zone and I don't think it's going to work. And I'm like, well, let's see what happens. And maybe this is the right model going forward. Um, or at least a model to adopt in addition to what I normally do, which is very market centric. But I think it's kind of hard to say. It really depends. I think maybe there are some investors who truly are exceptional at determining, you know, whether a founder without a great idea will end up with a good idea. And every once in a while, you see somebody who's truly exceptional at product. Like Jack Dorsey actually came up with Square as well as Twitter. You know, he, he obviously has yeah. uh, something special. Um, but most people aren't like that. And um, so it's, it's a bit of a mix. Yeah. And what does Jack Dorsey have? Because Square and Twitter are very different. It's not like he did the same in terms of social playbook. Yeah, it just seemed like he had... Yeah, I think, I think Jack has good like high-level intuition for products. I mean, you could argue if you look at the early days of YC, you know, Reddit, I think was Paul Graham's idea. Airbnb, I think Paul and Jessica have said that they hated the idea, but they love the founders, right? And that ended up being one of their biggest outcomes. So I think it's really hard for even the best people to know, you know, what's going to work, what's not going to work, who's going to transform into what. Um, It's such a mess early on that it's really hard to predict. So what tends to make markets good or bad or favorable or unfavorable or interested or not interested? Yeah. I mean, there's a few different types of markets that are interesting. Ultimately, I think that when all is said and done, maybe we start with the end goal. And there's lots of different types of businesses that you can build. When all is said and done, the best type of business in some sense, although Amazon disproves many of these things, so there's always the exception that proves the rule, the best types of businesses tend to be high margin, high growth, recurrent revenue driven. So you don't want to buy a customer and then lose them in a massive TAM, right? If you have those characteristics... And you have low competition, you have an amazing market. If a market has all those characteristics, it's very easy to find and spot and it's already saturated with people. And so most startup markets definitionally have to be non-obvious, right? If it was obvious, everybody would be doing it. And so startup market definitionally has to be one that you kind of figure out or sort out. And there's different ways to sort it out. You know, one way to do it is uh, to, you know, look at what are all the really smart people that you know are doing. Or, you know, you've built something multiple times for, for different companies and you realize, oh, it's a piece of infrastructure everybody needs. So that's sort of the experiential version of it. I think there's also the analytical version, which is you can try to assess a market or talk to certain customers and sort out whether an opportunity really exists. An example of that would be look at all the markets where the primary players are effectively acting like private equity. You know, they're very financially return driven. They don't really invest in product or technology. And if it's, if it has the right market structure or the right customer cycle, you may be able to break in there, right? So it can be, um, there's a couple. I mean, a lot of what's happening in the logistics world is like that, like the Flexports and Samsara's of the world. Um, that would be one example area. Uh, but there's a number of them. So the definition of most markets you're investing in new markets. Now it's a mix. I mean, so say that you look at sort of the DevSumer no code kind of area, you know, companies like Airtable, and retool and um, notion and zapier and you know the list goes on you know that's an example of a new take on a few different things you know how do you enable any individual to build apps from the ground up it's a new take on access or excel it's a new take on a variety of things but to some extent it's it's you know enterprise software um, and it and it fills a lot of the needs of of enterprise software. I mean, when all is said and done, I have a really big thesis right now that Accenture and other professional services companies are being eaten from two sides. On the one side, you have the Airtables of the world, you know, really allowing any white collar worker to build a set of applications based off of templates or off of their own workflows. 
And then on the other side, you have RPA and sort of the UI paths of the world um, eating at really simple automation and data extraction. And between them, I think they're going to end up squeezing a lot of these professional services companies or at least slimming them down. Why do some markets tend to fail? Some markets tend to fail? Yeah, because um, over time become yeah. less, less palatable or less... Oh, I mean, uh, sometimes it's just competition. You know, you can't really end up with a differentiated product over time. Um, so that's that's one issue that you may have bad markets to enter. The other is it could just be the distribution's locked up and the sales cycle really long is really long and it's really hard to actually break into the market. So you need to raise so much money to be able to last through. Um, GovTech or defense is an example where you actually want to be very well capitalized because if it takes you five years to hit a DOD contract, that's a really long time to run a business until you hit it. But when you hit it, maybe you end up with half billion dollars a year in revenue. So, you know, there's some markets where the sales cycle makes it really favorable for incumbents. Most regulation or markets tends to favor incumbents. And so regulators don't realize that they're effectively locking the door on competition when they highly regulate a market because the incumbents can comply and new entrants often can't. An example would be the amount of capital leverage, um, capital versus leverage you need on your balance sheet for certain types of lending businesses or for certain types of banking products that can really impact who can actually enter the market. So those sometimes are stronger to, are harder to enter. And then there are some markets where nobody's just willing to pay for value. And I think a lot of founders confuse doing something valuable with building a valuable company. So ed tech is a great area where in the US, I think international ed tech is different, but in the US, there's nobody who's willing to actually pay for products, right? The parents won't pay very much. Teachers can't afford it. School districts can't afford it. So who's going to pay for your K through 12 ed tech? You know, so I think that's just definitionally a hard place to build a company. Yeah. Just to get into ed tech for a bit, uh, I know Michelle has been famously negative on yeah. ed tech. My friend Danny Grant at Unisper Ventures is very positive on the ability to build companies outside the traditional ecosystem. So could you build like the Duolingo for math or could you build like uh, Airbnb for homeschool? Could you build you know, some parallel um, system of products? Uh, what, what do you call that? You know, I think there's always the opportunity to build something that will be valuable in any market, no matter what it is. It's more about, on average, how, what's your outcome going to be like? And so for every like interesting new take, like Lambda School, there's going to be a hundred things that are a bust. You know, would you rather be in a market where one out of a hundred end up working or in a market where 10 out of a hundred end up working? And I think that's the difference between a good market and a bad market. So you can find exceptions in almost any market, but do you really want to focus on exceptions or do you want to find Areas that are really rich areas to mine. And the 10 out of 100, where are those right now for you? Like, where are the markets? Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of DevSumer, no Cody kind of stuff is, is really interesting. There's a ton in supply chain and logistics. There's some in real estate tech. Crypto, I think, is an interesting market. I think there's inter- interesting things in legal tech. I think there's tons and tons to do still in like standard SaaS services, infrastructure, be, uh, you know, dev tools. I, I think there's a ton to do still. So Eric and I have been looking uh, at frameworks on that encapsulate picking a market, uh, going to market, and then executing once you are in market. And the two most famous ones are the uh, Peter Thiel thesis and Zero to One, uh, which more focused on picking a niche, trying to monopolize that niche, build up a durable asset, and then expand. And then, or then counter to that on the other end of the spectrum is the Keith Ravoy thesis of you go horizontal, or you try and solve for all first, then you try and build up some accumulating advantage, and then you let the market figure out where you should go or you should execute on further. Are there any other frameworks that you think we should be aware of as we're trying to figure out different approaches to markets? 
or different ways to interpret markets? There's a number of different ways to interpret markets. One of them is just to ask, what's, uh, what's the underlying market structure? Because the market structure really determines both which of those approaches makes the most sense, but also is there a real opportunity? Um, there's some market structures where it's really hard to go in and do things, or there are some market structures where you really have to be a monopoly to win or a near monopoly, sort of winner take all or winner take up most markets. And then there's lots and lots of markets that are more fragmented. And it's really interesting because the, the dogma in Silicon Valley is that you always want to be in a winner take all or winner take most market. And in reality, it turns out that you can build massive companies without that. Right. Yeah. And so Stripe would be a great example where there's Agen and there's PayPal and there's, you know, and then beyond that, there's enormous fragmentation in payments. And yet you can still build a massive company there or, um, Uber and Lyft would be another example. Dropbox box, Google Drive, Gusto, Paychex, ADP. You know, yeah. there's all these examples of markets where the three biggest players, I mean, the, the payroll business is a great example. The three biggest players make up what, like 30, 40% of the market. Yeah. You know, there's all these frameworks that have actually been inappropriately put forth relative to what really creates value in Silicon Valley. And it's great to be in a winner take all market. It actually matters a lot, but it isn't the single most important thing. Gotcha. Do you think it's uh, more common that a winner take all market is not the, uh, or not all markets or the majority of markets are not winner take all markets? I think the bigger the market gets, the more likely it is to be fragmented in some yeah. sense, unless there's a very clear network effect or scale effect that just drives everybody else out. Yep. And if you don't have one of those two things, then it's going to be an oligopoly market. It's going to have some set of larger players and then a bunch of fragmentation. I think uh, you talked about in a blog post passing on Lyft in their CVC round. And this, well, I guess, what changed your thinking from then until now? Because I think before when you said you yeah. passed, you first believed it was a winner-take-all market. Yeah, I thought it was winner take all and I was, uh, it turned out to be quite wrong. I guess the main thing that's changed is that Lyft ended up being very, uh, very large outcome. <laughs> so I was totally wrong. Fair enough. Um, when you are evaluating markets or when you, for example, you're and you have your investor hat on and a startup comes to you and they have a pitch and they have my market is X million or billion dollars. Uh, how often do you take that for truth versus doing your own? And then how do you, I guess, trust but verify what they have on sure. their, in their Yeah, it's a couple of different ways. Uh, one is, what is the market caps of the company and the market they're trying to subsume? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, is it a replacement product? Is it adjacent? Is it something else? Yep. So that that's one way to do it. Uh, two is if it's of a new product or something that's replacing internal infrastructure, you can kind of ask what's, what's the number of businesses that'll need this and how much will they pay? And then therefore assume, say they win 10, 20% of the market. What's their revenue stream? So page your duty would be a great example of that where there wasn't a very good equivalent product when I invested. Yeah. You know, the, the thesis to me was very clear. A lot of investors that I sent it to, uh, I, I angel invested and then I sent it to a bunch of people and most of them came back basically saying, Oh, it's too small and niche. And, you know, who's going to do this? And you're like, well, it's obvious anybody who has some sort of software team will need this, yep. um, need this product. So, you know, sometimes if it's a new product, it's harder to, to be certain about it. It's back to the non-obvious side of it. But if you're either somebody who would be a user yourself or alternatively, you can just do simple math. If there's N enterprises of Y size paying Z dollars, you know, sometimes it's kind of clear. Got it. Fair enough. Another thing I think you talked about uh, regarding to market size, uh, you had a post called M&A 2% and the $1 billion rule. And in this is the, at least my takeaway is if 
there's a company in which two per, it's at least $50 billion or 2% of it is over a billion dollars and they acquire you for that price, you can get a massive outcome. One in, in the post, you talked about Cruise and being acquired by GM. Uh, how does timing affect this rule or like your interpretation of things? Because in uh, like 2008 or so, a lot of auto companies went bankrupt. Sure. I think it's about um, what will the CEO and the board of a company be willing to pay relative to their own market cap? Mm-hmm. If you're a billion-dollar company, it's very hard for you to give half of your equity away yeah. um, in order to buy somebody else for a billion dollars. And so if the only players in your market are worth a billion dollars, unless you go public or unless there's some other uh, larger player wanting to enter the industry, it's going to be very hard for you to exit for a lot. It's just the market caps of the acquirers are too low. And you can see different markets where that's true. If on the other hand, you know, there's lots of strategic value to what you're doing and you're, even if you're not generating any revenue and there's multiple hundred billion dollar plus companies, you may end up with a very outsized acquisition without even building a real business. And we've seen that happen with sort of uh, AGI companies, right? Uh, companies just focused on AI for its own sake. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen that happen in. Uh, some early sort of IoT areas, we saw that happen with Oculus, where Facebook just decided there was enormous strategic value in an unlaunched product. Yep. And so, you know, if if you're in a market where multiple very large players will view you as strategic, you tend to have a much better outcome than not, right? And so the market caps of the the players around you are going to be as important as the market itself if your focus is on a strategic outcome. How do you define the boundaries of a market? Because you can argue a startup, their market or their addressable market is more confined than larger company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's basically what are the sets of products or goods that you're selling to which customers and which buyers at those customers. And then it kind of lines up accordingly. So for example, if I'm uh, selling, you know, you can sub fragment these things as much as you want, but a a great example of product redefinition is Coca-Cola was consistently at over 50% share in the soda market. So they kept patting themselves on the back and saying, look, it's awesome. We're consistently over 50%. And then eventually they had a CEO said, well, are we in the soda market or are we in the beverages market? Yeah. And if we're in the beverages market, we have less than a percent of market share and we should start buying water companies and juice companies and all the things that they ended up doing with Dasani and others. And the reason they did that is they redefined the market that they were in from being one of soda to being one of all beverages. And suddenly they had very little share. And so I think that market definition, um, to your point, really drives a lot of the actions that companies will take. You had a, a post recently or past few months with first round capital about how to find these non-obvious opportunities. And a couple areas you uh, recommended was searching places that are small, that are boring, high end, or personally unfamiliar. And if you... Uh, I view these as these are potentially like niches. How do you know if a niche is, in the first example, too small? One of the things people don't talk about enough is uh, that your growth rate is effectively a reflection of the TAM or effective TAM of the market that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that effect, that especially kicks in the larger the market is. Excuse me, the larger your revenue basis is. So if you're at a million dollars ARR and you're growing 20% year over year, you're in a very, you're either in a bad market, you have a bad product or you're being outcompeted. The flip of it is if you're at a $50 million revenue stream and you're doubling, is that good or bad? Right. Or if you're at a hundred million, is it better to, and you're growing 30%, is that good or bad? Would you rather be a $20 million company growing 3X a year or a hundred million dollar company growing 20% a year? You know, those sorts of questions are important to sort of getting at what 
is the true market size. And when all is said and done, the really, really massive outcomes tend to be these companies that keep compounding even at very large revenue bases. And the reason they can keep growing that aggressively, especially on their core product area, is because the market's so big, right? And so growth is really, growth, especially at scale, is a reflection of TAM. Um, a few things that you can do to basically figure out if a market is niche or not is one, you can do the bottom up TAM exercise that we discussed. So you just say, how many customers can they really have? And yeah. you multiply that out. Um, growth rate we talked about, um, you know, uh, differentiation and defensibility obviously also matter. And so I think there's like a number of factors that, uh, that you can look at. Uh, the other thing I'd say is it's not just about your TAM, it's about your effective TAM. And so how much of the market can you realistically win? It could be a massive market. But if it's already crowded with a lot of incumbents with five-year sales contracts, maybe you can't win any business and it doesn't matter how big the market is because you're never going to make any traction. So yeah. your effective market is tiny. And so I try to almost think of it in terms of effective TAM. You know, what, what, are you what can you really address? That's great. That's something I haven't necessarily heard before. Uh, looking at uh, a different or just even any of these niches, oftentimes in like the Peter Thiel view is you want to expand niche by niche. Are you a fan of that approach? Or, and then if that's the case, uh, he talks a little bit about monopolizing one niche and then moving to the next one. How, uh, I guess, how much market share do you think someone should have before yeah. expanding? It depends on how you define niche. And this comes back yeah. to that Coca Cola example of what is your real market? Is it water or is it, I mean, is it all beverages or is yeah. it soda? You know, the, the overlapping framework with what Peter is talking about is Jeffrey Moore's crossing the chasm. Where he said, you know, you start with the with the um, early adopters, and then you sort of morph your way through customer bases in terms of expanding expansion of your product, yep. and along the way, you're changing your product across the chasm into sort of the mainstream. And so, it sounds like a very similar thing to what Peter is saying, but with maybe different words. Which is, you know, you want to choose the initial user base that you delight and that loves your product, and then you grow from there. Um, I don't know about whether it has to be monopoly again or not. Like, I think you want to have high share. And if you can be a monopoly, that's better for you as a business. But was Stripe a monopoly when it launched? You know, I mean, monopolies take a really long time to build. Uh, and so, you know, I just think um, Microsoft, great example. They were in business for what, five to seven years before they even had an OS. Yep. And then they had the partnership with IBM that really propelled the OS. But in parallel, Apple had a lot of share. All the different microcomputer companies had a lot of share. Like they weren't a monopoly on day one. But eventually, over multiple years, they built out that position in terms of distributing their OS through multiple partnerships with OEMs. And then eventually, they became effectively a monopoly, right, on the OS side. But it took a while. So I don't have any startup that's immediately a monopoly. That's true. And, and then the, the last one I want to talk about, uh, or areas that you can find non-obvious, is where you talked about uh, being uh, in an unfamiliar area. Um, other people can call it like being on the edges, or that's a Keith Raboy talks about in like a non-consumption market. How do you evaluate? Because in those markets, effectively the TAM is zero, or people, are, there's you know, it's it's completely new, so people haven't necessarily bought anything yet. Uh, how do you assess those markets and whether they will work? Yeah, I think there's two versions of that. There's the this is just something very new, mm -hmm. but it's growing at a very high uh, compounding rate. And so the internet is a great example where once it started to go live with browsers, it grew really fast. But the initial base for the entire internet was tiny, right? I think it was, what was it? By 2000, there was like 100 million people online or something like that, right? And today that's like, you know, a successful uh, feature for Facebook or something, right? And so 
I think one is just what's the underlying growth rate of, of the market. 3D printing is a great example of an incredibly important, impactful market, but it's only growing, I think, 20 or 30% year over year or some, some low rate. Maybe it's 50% at most, but it's not 200% year over year. And so nobody, not everybody's going to have a 3D printer on their desktop, right? All the people were talking about that 10 years ago, but if you looked at the growth rate, you'd be like, well, is there an accelerant here? Or is it just going to keep compounding at this rate? But it's just not you know, the same adoption curve that creates like a true societal shift. Although it's, it's a very important technology. When, when does a market like that become exciting? That's something you know eventually is going to be big, but when does that start to? Yeah. You know, I actually have made one 3d printing and uh, company investment. Uh, I seeded a company called form labs, um, which has done pretty well. It's like, uh, you know, right. It's last round was over a billion dollars and, you know, it's, it's sort of one of the great next gen um, 3d printing companies. And there I invested um, because the team was just known as exceptional and they were central nodes in the sort of 3D printing network. And they were trying to um, help really accelerate a new market segment. And honestly, I viewed it a little bit as, hey, I'm going to understand more about this market over time through this team. And they may be a good sensor for when it really takes off as a, as a, or when the compounding really takes off. But I think it's really hard. I think you know, sometimes markets will go through these transitions and there has to be a clear why now to the transition, you know, like, oh, great. Suddenly we have all this fiber optic cable and, you know, you don't have to wait for, you know, your, whatever it was, you know, uh, modem to, to load a page over the course of two minutes or whatever. Yeah, I think it's the question is how do you protect against being too early? Um, I think you just look at growth of customer adoption like that. When all said and done, I think half of investing just comes back to that. In regards to when you're evaluating uh, either market opportunities or just investments in general, uh, what level of diligence do you end up going into? Is it, uh, if I think about the spectrum is, you know, you write a check after the first meeting towards, you know, you have a whole, uh, you do a lot of uh, active due diligence. Yeah, I try to diligence things um, more heavily than most angels. Um, the busier I get, the harder it is to do that as deeply you know, like if I start a company or something then it, you know, it's, it's harder to do, but the flip of it is, you know, I do try to figure out whether something is a good product. Um, does the market actually want it? Uh, I, sometimes I'll call people who could be potentially potential customers and I just ask them, what do you think of this? Would you use it? Have you seen a lot of other companies like this? You know, sometimes, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll ask to understand user metrics or revenue or other things. I'll often reference check, uh, the founders, even if it's for a small check. Yeah. So I actually try to do real diligence. I think one of the reasons a lot of angels have a lot of bad investments is they don't. And it's just kind of, let me throw some money around and hope it works. What's your um, sort of framework for evaluating founders, especially when you don't know them as well? Yeah. I'm looking for a couple things. Clarity of communication. Are they crisp? Do they tell me a bunch of stuff I don't need to know? Do they seem smart? Are they thoughtful? Have they thought through a lot of things that are basic questions? So I think that's one aspect of it. Uh, you know, two is the, the co-founder dynamic. Do they respect each other? Uh, do they give each other time to talk? Are they, do you feel some tension or conflict underlying the conversation? Yeah. How do they split up roles? Who makes decisions? How do they make decisions? All that stuff. And then, you know, one thing that I think is undervalued these days, but it's really hard to tell very early. Like if you have two founders, say you have two engineers um, straight out of school, then, you know, they, they may not have time to develop this. I do think that one thing that's underweighted these days is commercial thinking or the ability to pick up commercial thinking. Because when all is said and done, the very strategic founders who can think from a business as well as technology mindset tend to be the ones 
that can really go the distance if the thing actually works. The thing working or not, I think depends on the market. Um, obviously the grid of the founder and everything else matters too, but is the market good or not? I think again, is the biggest determinant. And then after that, it's like, can they actually grow into a role where they're leading not only a product, but a company? And those are very different things. And I see some founders fall over where they're, they're more about the product and they, and they don't have to do it themselves, but they can hire in people to help with the company side, but they are building a company. They are building a business. And if they think about it that way, I think it really helps them. He had this famous slide about how it was a big pile of years, it was all of that. Uh, they had to find talent that was previously not rated or that other people weren't discovering. So, yeah. young people or, or people who just been underrated because they couldn't compete with Facebook or Google. Sure. Uh, but perhaps you as an angel don't have to do that because you've been doing this for so long and so well. Um, how do you think about uh, you know, taking bets on people where people haven't taken bets on them for versus sure. letting them sort of filter to the top? You know, I'm, I'm definitely happy to, to invest in somebody that doesn't have a long track record or history. You know, I think some of the best founders I've backed come from that sort of background or, you know, they, um, were at some company for a couple of years, but they didn't do much there. I think the real question is, do they understand the problem area that they're working in? Uh, are they good at sales? And I don't mean sales just from a customer centric perspective. I mean, can they convince people to join them? at the startup? Can they raise money? You know, really like a lot of a founder's job is selling, even though it's not talked about that way. It's selling your customers, it's selling capital, it's selling employees, it's, it's creating this common view of what you're trying to accomplish. And so that's a really important trait, I think, in the most successful founders. And again, people may not have that as strongly early, but if they don't have salesmanship, they may have clarity of thinking and communication, which I think is um, really the basis for great sale, great selling. At the early stage, seed or pre-seed, when you're looking to invest, do you think these pitches are gameable? Especially if they haven't necessarily had, uh, sometimes you see startups that like recently launched or, or haven't launched yet. Yeah, I think, uh, there's a lot of companies these days who will show up with, we have $10 million in LOIs. And you're like, what does that mean? You know, LOIs. Like, and who and why? And, you know, is there any real teeth to that? Uh, so I do think it's gameable. And that's where I think the diligence comes in. I think the more time you spend on diligence, the less likely you are to get gamed. To an extent, if at all, do you have sort of a request for startups or, or go outbound of, hey, I think this specific company should exist in a no code space. And I'm going to, you know, look at the three companies that are doing it and invest in one versus more inbound-oriented or mm-hmm. emergent or opportunistic of, oh, I was excited about this market, but I wasn't sure of the solution. Now, you know, more aware of it. Yeah, I've done a bit of both. Um, you know, when all is said and done, there's thousands of and thousands of founders, and they're going to be smarter than I ever will in terms of figuring out what the next set of interesting things are. So on average, I'm more reactive than proactive. The flip of it is, if I hear of something that I think is really cool, I may just reach out to talk to the founder just because I think it's cool, you know, um, versus anything more nefarious. And then there are some circumstances where I've said, huh, you know, there's a real wave happening here. Let me go and find the best companies in this area. And so crypto would be one example where I funded, um, Coinbase late. So, you know, in their, uh, one and a half billion dollar round. And then I, and, uh, around or before that time, I'd already started helping Anchorage, which became the crypto custody company. You know, uh, Harbor and, uh, Tagomi on the broker side and, uh, Bitwise and sort of the crypto index fund. I think they're now the leading index fund. So 
you know, I had a thesis around there's a, this big financial stack harbor for securitization. Like there's this big financial stack coming in crypto. And so what are the areas that are going to matter? And are there people working in those areas? And if so, you know, maybe I can back them. So that was an example of a thesis around at least the financial infrastructure side of crypto. And that may be a wrong thesis. You know, it's still time will tell. Let's go into uh, some specific markets. Uh, so first, are there markets that you think Silicon Valley is not paying attention to where you are? That's a good question. A recent one that Silicon Valley was kind of ignoring and then everybody's talking about is RPA and UiPath, where for Silicon Valley, it sort of came out of nowhere until it did like a mega round. And that, that happens on occasion. And then talk about why did they miss that or? I think, I mean, I think some of the big Silicon Valley companies eventually ended up funding it um, in terms of venture funds. Uh, I think part of it was it was just a little bit out of network. It was a tool being used by consultants up to a point. It was based in initially Romania and then it grew to New York and other places. So I think part of it, part of the reasons it was under the radar was just its location. You know, Wish was off of the Silicon Valley radar for a while. Uh, you, you know, they raised a lot of money from Jill Lonsdale and eight, but fundamentally it wasn't a mainstream company in part because Peter was focused on building a business instead of getting a lot of press. So I think, I think there's all sorts of things that Silicon Valley misses. Uh, vice versa. What do you think Silicon Valley is very excited about what you're dubious about right now? I think anything that is um, not really a tech company, but is being sort of treated and valued as one aren't areas that I'm personally getting involved with. I mean, some of them are very exciting areas from a societal perspective, you know, like food tech and things like that. But um, it's not an area I'm very engaged in. So is that CDG? Is that managed marketplace? Is that Twitter? Oh, uh, an example would be, um, you know, the Hampton Creek Mayo Company and things like that. Like, as you know, or, you know, Impossible Foods is incredibly cool. Um, I think it's a really exciting company, uh, but it's not one that I would get involved with simply because it's, you know, outside of what I understand. So there's a couple areas like that. I mean, Internet of Things is one that I've largely avoided um, with, with some small exceptions. I've gotten involved with things more on the sort of uh, fleet management and industrial side, but not on the IoT in your home area, which I think will really be driven by large incumbents. Yeah. Maybe one way to put it is there are a set of um, companies that I think large or a set of businesses, large companies are especially primed to build. Yeah. And then there's things that startups are really good at. And startups tend to fail at the things that large companies are good at unless there's a huge market discrepancy or you have a unique founder like an Elon Musk type. Can you add a a little bit of color on what are the things, uh, there's a bunch of things that big companies are good at, but uh, where do you think they have an advantage over uh, startups? Yeah, they have an advantage where in areas where locked in pre-existing distribution really matters where uh, there's a lot of capital needed, a long time frame is needed, or there's very high product complexity. Mm. And so Alexa is sort of a combination of multiple of those, right? Or Echo, right? For Amazon. They had the distribution, they had a complex product uh, and supply chain and hardware and everything else. And they spent a lot of money over a long period of time to build it. So there's some sectors. How about uh, real estate? Yeah. I, I mean, I think Open Door is obviously a super exciting company in terms of really flipping the model. Um, on the real estate side, I think there's lots to do. I mean, when all is said and done, um, it's a pretty massive market and there's all sorts of ways to start thinking about, uh, title and mortgages. And there's things like Divi doing fractional ownership. And, you know, I think, I think there's, uh, or there's like Mosaic, the, the building company. I think they're doing interesting things in sort of software different buildings. So I think there's a couple different areas that are pretty interesting there. How do you know living as a service? Zeus, common, under? Yeah, I think it's an interesting area. Um, 
you know, I'm not as deep in some of those uh, areas. You know, obviously, I think Zeus is doing some interesting things, um, uh, but I don't, I don't have enormous depth in terms of, you know, uh, maybe one way, one thing I've been thinking about. The thing I like about Zeus is it's really focused more on the corporate market. Yeah. Um, I'm more skeptical about the that's going to be 20 people in a shared space uh, for living market. I think that's more because uh, people can't afford real estate than it is because of an intention to want to have 19 roommates. And so I think a lot of the press portrays these shifts in living spaces as something that everybody wants to do and therefore is a trend versus there's an economic driver that as soon as people have enough money, they just go and buy a house in the suburbs anyhow. And I think there's early data that suggests that actually once millennials have enough money to buy a house, they go buy a house. They don't have 19 roommates. So I just think some of those things are also a little bit, you know, every 10, 20 years, the same stories get told over and over about the next generation and the prior generation in the press. And at some point, you kind of have to roll your eyes. I think about degrading industries like healthcare in particular. Yeah, um, healthcare is a toughie in that um, there's enormous societal value in doing something there. There's massive amounts of GDP. It's 18% of GDP goes to healthcare spend. I think Warren Buffett calls it the tapeworm on society, right? Because it's just sucking value out of everything else. Um, imagine if you could basically free up, you know, if you look at comparable healthcare systems in other countries, they're more spending something like 8 to 10% of GDP. So imagine if you could free up 10% of GDP um, per year for other things, investment in education or whatever. I mean, amazing impact, right? And so um, healthcare really is strangling our society in a variety of ways. Part of that's driven by um, nested monopoly and oligopoly structures. And part of that is through regulation. And then part of that is through how paying is done in the system. Because if you look at US healthcare, the person who's benefiting from something, who's the patient, is different from the person who decides what's going to happen to them, who's a doctor, which is different from the person who pays for it, which is the um, insurance company. And that really distorts the market in terms of value derived versus everything else. So I think it's it's structural, and that's driven by regulation. How about transportation? Where, where are you excited right now? It's going to take a while, but obviously autonomous vehicles are going to remake everything. But I don't know when that's coming. Yeah. When do you think that's coming? Uh, professional services or sort of atrium for racks, like how much can that, can that extend, the hollow extend? Yeah, I think the thing I'm most excited about is um, how software can eat professional services. And so uh, it's back to the sort of DevSumer, no code, RPA side of things. I think that's a super interesting trend. And I think we're going to see verticalized versions of that. I also think there's a lot of things that's being done in professional services that should just be SaaS software. And at some point it will be, and so it's just a matter of time. And so for me, the really exciting thing around professional services is how do you start converting more and more of it into software? And there's some areas where you just can't do that, right? Um, or you you need a much smarter AI to do it. And there's some areas where it's just workflow and it's packaging of things and it's just being smart about some simple things. Do you expect to invest in a uh, consumer social company in the next few years? years? Yeah, I think so. What might that look like? Where might you be excited? Uh, anything that's working as uh, a short answer. Um, you know, fundamentally, if you look at the various types of social networks, you basically end up with three or four buckets, right? You have identity slash uh, events slash, you know, whatever you want to call it, which is Facebook. Uh, you have work, which is LinkedIn. You have uh, public discourse and news, which is Twitter. Um, and then you have a bunch of communication apps. 
you know, WhatsApp and um, Snap and a bunch of others, or I should say Twitter and Instagram were sort of the public ones. Um, and then there's, there's other things that are more commerce centric or that allow you to, to, to do other activities like Pinterest, right? But when all said and done, that's the universe we have today. And the question is, um, is there going to be a new use case? And my guess is probably not. Or is there going to be something vertical? Like I, I do think at some point there is going to be a neighborhood centric sort of social product. Um, maybe next door just gets there through sheer momentum over time of being unchallenged, but I don't think it's the product. So either they morph or it's just momentum or something comes up and eats, eats that. Um, but I think that's coming. Uh, and then I do think that at some point, um, there will be some replacement for Twitter slash Facebook in terms of the, of a new service simply because those products aren't evolving at a fast pace and they have a lot of very negative social dynamics on them. And the big question is, can you build product that avoids the social dynamics or is it inevitable? And I, I don't know the answer to that. My assumption is you can actually build product. To a few percent, I definitely agree with the location based. I feel like the attack was, was on to something. Maybe you maybe you should have been anonymous or pseudonymous, but there's definitely something about location based that we uh, that's untapped. Yeah, and I'd probably phrase it more as neighborhood than location. Because uh, for me, location means hey, there's two people that are both in London, do they want to meet up? Uh, versus hey, here's a set of people who live in this area and they need to communicate around area specific needs. Well, have you ever done anything in dating? No. Is that because ISC, ISC just owns it or, or you just don't think it's good? It's you know, honestly, I want to try the apps that I invest in and <laughs> I'm married and I just don't want to send the wrong message to my wife. <laughs> exactly. Great answer. The, um, but do you think there'll be you know, another Tinder, like an emerging visit or no? Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should ask Anuj. I'm the wrong person to answer that one. Totally. Um, how about on the the media side? I mean, it's interesting. Lightspeed and, and a bunch of other great, great firms, that's a great firm, had this sort of bet a few years ago that they were going to do a bunch of these, you know, cheddar, a bunch of these like, new media like platforms, OTT uh, experiences. And I, it's too early to see whether the tap they works, but it, it doesn't look super promising. Even Buzzfeed, right? Yeah. I'm curious what your perspective is on, on, on that. I've always tried to avoid content businesses. Because content businesses are really hard, A, because they're, they're harder to monetize, although gaming is a counterexample to that. Uh, and B, you're just kind of on this treadmill to keep producing content. And so instead of building software, which is reproducible, when all said and done, you actually don't have to change software that much. I mean, you add features and all the rest, but you know, it's not, it's not like every day you're rushing to, to, to do the next very tiny new feature and news is on that cycle. And so I think it's just a much harder business to build. It's more brand centric as well. Um, and I'd much rather just focus on software products. Right. And it, do you similarly feel the same way about, um, say, like the Forerunner, right? Like DTC brands, like Allers, Rothy's? Yeah, I've largely missed anything DTC because of that. Like, I just, I don't understand the dynamics well enough. It's very focused on branding and certain types of distribution. Most of them don't deserve tech multiples because they're not tech companies. So I think a lot of people kind of delude themselves into thinking that they have the characteristics of a software company. But the characteristic of a software company is you have a bunch of bits that you ship around and you charge extremely high margin for, and it doesn't change that much. Yeah. Will there be a LinkedIn competitor in the next five years that actually disrupts? Yeah, I think it's hard to predict. Um, I do think that's another area where there's a lot of room for improvement and potentially somebody coming in and competing. 
Uh, I don't know what form it'll take, but it's it's a good one to keep an eye out for. I wonder why it's been so movable. It's just amazing network effect. And also, it actually serves its purpose pretty well. I mean, people always complain about it, but when all said and done, and it depends on what you're using it for. If you're just looking for an online resume, it works great. I actually think GitHub had a great opportunity to do something in this area, particularly for the developer community. And GitHub just didn't add very much over time, right? And so maybe under NAT at Microsoft, it'll add things like that. But, you know, I actually think GitHub would have been the place that had the likely, the biggest likelihood of actually building a competitor. Have you done anything in recruiting? Yeah, I've invested in a few recruiting centric companies. And could you see yourself doing more? Maybe is it like LinkedIn for accident making offices? I'm gonna I'm gonna see how um, the existing companies do and try and avoid too many conflicts and things like that. So, and the existing companies are more on the infrastructure side. Or? Yeah, I'm I'm an investor in an ATS. I'm an investor in a few different types of recruiting tools. So, if you look at the last uh, five to ten years of of software, one of the things I've been kind of fascinated by is if you look at most industry what industries, what happens is that you start off with a few point products that are sort of exceptionally good for one thing. The market's entirely new. All these people adopt these products. And then five, 10 years later, the market matures and people start complaining about having to buy from five different vendors. And then you see consolidation either through one company buying everybody else up or somebody launching adjacent products. And when you bundle or launch new products, they only have to be 80% as good, right? It doesn't have to be better than anybody else because you're cross-selling it. So it doesn't matter. And so one of the markets where I'm surprised by the lack of consolidation has been the recruiting tools market. Another one would be in the sort of marketing analytics and analytics tools. You know, you have multiple different software packages you have to use between segment and optimizely and mixed panel and the list sort of goes on. Although segment obviously helps weave some of those together. Uh, then you have your, all your email marketing tools and then you have, I mean, the list goes on, right? And so if you talk to a CMO, they always say, ah, oh, I don't want to buy from two dozen vendors and I wish everything was integrated and my team has to write all this code to stitch everything together and don't have good dashboards. And if somebody did bundling, you wouldn't need to, to, to do all that extra internal work and you just have one thing that works for everything. And so, um, recruiting is one market where I think it should eventually consolidate to that. Um, and I think there's a bunch of those other markets and I'm surprised that hasn't happened yet. So you, you mentioned in, in, in your crypto thesis that you sort of transposing existing fintech infrastructure onto, onto crypto. How have you thought about traditional fintech investing and where are you excited? Yeah, I've done a number of traditional fintech investments. So things like Stripe and Square and, you know, a variety of others. Uh, I'm an investor in Brex. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great area. Um, and looking forward to the next five years, where could you see? Oh. I mean, there's a lot to be done all over the place. Um, I think insurance is obviously, there's there's a number of things you can be doing there. We talked about real estate, which is really a fintech market. Um, so I think there's lots and lots of products. I think there's all sorts of different new loan types that may come out and finance, financial services companies. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of room still there for innovation. I think the hard part sometimes that people confuse in fintech as well as other markets is just distribution. You know, like retail investment products, really hard to distribute. And Robinhood has kind of pulled it off. Um, as far as I know, I mean, I don't know anything about them internally, uh, but it's really, really hard to do. And so I think BlackRock and many of the incumbents for certain market segments just have such a big advantage right. in terms of scale and distribution. Right. And uh, the companies that figure out distribution, what exactly are they doing right? Um, I think most companies, uh, just like there's a singular product strategy, there tends to be a singular distribution strategy. And most people don't really think about that. Now, there's counter examples of that, like LinkedIn initially distributed through a mix of SEO, 
virality as people sort of invited people in and, you know, one or two other mechanisms. So, you know, sometimes companies distribute across multiple means. They also were unusual in that they monetized across three different product lines, right? And usually you have singular monetization, really, right? There's one thing that really works from a product and pricing perspective, and then you add things onto it. But yeah, usually it's it's figuring out what is the channel that is scalable and repeatable. And then can you just turn a crank on it with process? And so, you know, obviously enterprise sales is one of those. I think many bottoms up companies really miss their opportunity and undergrow because the bottoms up stuff is working so well that they never hire a salesperson. When in reality, they should be saying, how can we go at this as fast as we can across as, multi- as many angles as possible? I think the two companies are always great at that were Google and Facebook. Google was spending half a billion dollars at its peak on distribution of toolbar, which, you know, would embed inside different browsers like Internet Explorer so that they could embed Google search everywhere. And it would cross download with like Adobe and all these other products. And so they were spending like hundreds of millions of dollars a year to do this, right? And nobody ever talks about that. Everybody's like, oh, Google grew organically because it was a better product. And that's totally false. It grew because they paid for growth. Um, Facebook, similarly, as they would enter new markets in Europe, would literally buy um, ads against people's proper names so that they could convert people in as people did searches for themselves. You know, so companies were the, the really outstanding, massive companies are the ones that are extremely aggressive about distribution early. And that doesn't just mean, hey, it's bottoms up, it's working, we're growing 15% a month. It's the people who are like, what is every channel I can possibly exploit to get to dominance, you know, <laughs> or to get to a massive scale as fast as I can? And that's back to that comment I had earlier around, do people have a commercial sense? You know, do they want to really embrace other aspects of their business besides just product and engineering or hire people who can? You mentioned there's a lot of opportunity in enterprise. Looking at like in the next few years, where do you think of the white space? Where specifically within enterprise are you most curious about exploring? I think uh, there's a few. One is back to the Accenture kept Gemini replacements. So what what can you build that will eat away at that core? Um, second is I think if you were to take a Fortune 500 company and just decompose it into its bits and ask what are the repeatable things that people have to keep doing manually you'd end up with a dozen billion dollar plus companies. I think Checker effectively was like that for background checking. Page your engineering team and there's tons and tons of companies that need to do that. So it's just whatever you have to do sort of repeatedly um, often tend to be things that you can build software around. Have you done any VR, AR companies? And if not, when? I think the when is a great question. I've not done anything in AR, VR and I've always, I think there's a set of markets that are always five years away. And the second they hit, they're going to be awesome and massive and really important. AR and VR is one of them. Certain aspects of microfluidics or MEMS is another. So I think there's a variety of these markets that are always just a couple of years around the corner. And, you know, when they work, they'll be really valuable, but who knows when they're going to work. Right. You mentioned the first wave of crypto, if you use this fintech infrastructure, what could you see as the next wave in terms of the types of companies you're, you're investing in? Uh, I've invested in a lot or a number of um, early protocol companies like or layer one protocols like Coda and the like. Uh, when all said and done, I think a lot of the use cases in the near term for crypto are going to be financially driven. So even something like Ethereum, if you look at it, I think there's four different pieces of value that Ethereum has. It's a fundraising mechanism through ERC-20 tokens. It's a unit of denomination and a reserve currency on crypto exchanges. So everything is listed in ETH pairs or Bitcoin pairs. And then lastly, it's a DApp platform. And for some reason, everybody keeps talking about how the DApp platform is the important part. And I think the other three things are the reason that Ethereum has the market cap that it does. And so as people go and build layer one protocols to try and displace Ethereum, I feel like they should be more thoughtful about what is the real value driver and how can they displace those aspects of Ethereum. 
And, and again, maybe DApps is the way in because if you have a high utilization app, it's going to fundraise on that platform and it's going to yeah. for- push people over. So it's always possible. Right. Um, I just think, you know, really Ethereum is a financial services product. Yeah. And do you review versus uh, centralized companies versus decentralized uh, projects within the crypto space? Yeah. So I'm going to be old school on this. I think in general, centralization is much easier to manage than decentralization on the team side, right? Obviously, as a protocol itself, you want it to be decentralized, but I don't think that necessitates a decentralized team. And so I think it just makes it a lot harder to do everything. Teams fall over themselves. Uh, a lot of a lot of aspects get harder, even though certain aspects of hiring get easier. So my bias is always bet on the people who are all sitting in one room together. Yep. Lastly, how about uh, biotech or specifically longevity? Yeah. Um, longevity. Uh, so there's multiple lines of evidence that suggest that human life or animal life in general can uh, be extended pretty dramatically through a variety of things. One is individual uh, genetic mutations or knockouts in different organisms. So there's mutations in the DAF pathway in C. elegans that allow these little worms to live two, three times longer as healthy adults and then crash out. There's um, drug, There's mutations uh, like clotho in um, mice that have a you know, 20, 30% impact on lifespan. There's um, drugs like rapamycin or metformin that across multiple organisms will extend lifespan. So there's lots and lots of data that suggests that this is something you can just manipulate genetically. Uh, it seems like there's a big market failure in terms of starting companies that can actually build drugs that will address um, aging. And so I've been involved with two. One is called uh, BioAge, a uh, very talented um, founding team there. And then one is called Spring, uh, which we mentioned earlier. And so I'm really bullish about those two companies are taking very different approaches, but I think their goal is the same in terms of drugs that extend lifespan. Um, the one other area that I'm spending some time from a sort of frontiers market perspective, although I tend to just do software, is, um, you know, the machine learning semiconductor space. And so uh, if you look at it, every major technology shift has had a tens of billions of dollar semiconductor company created underlying it. So for mobile, it was Qualcomm and ARM. For networking, it was um, Broadcom. Uh, for the microcomputer revolution, it was Intel and AMD. Um, for graphics processing, it's obviously NVIDIA. For crypto, it's probably Bitmain. And I think similarly in the machine learning world, a lot of people have traditionally been using NVIDIA GPUs. Uh, but Google uh, came out a couple of years ago with tensor processing units or TPUs. And uh, they see dramatically better performance from machine learning models. And so I think similarly, there's going to be some custom ASICs companies, you know, Grok and Cerebras are two of them uh, that I think are going to do uh, potentially quite well over time. Uh, so you talk about the best supply chain. Like, w- w- uh, how do you think about, and we talk about distributed things that is interesting uh, or relevant. Where, where do you think the innovation is there? Or why are you excited about it? It's not a second space here. So I'm about to talk about a lot. Yeah, there's just... um an enormous part of the economy is tied up in sending things, you know, or moving them around. And so, uh, and many of these things are living on antiquated technology stacks or, or alternatively, uh, there's new regulatory shifts like ELD compliance in the trucking industry, which then suggests that you need to have certain sensors to tell if a driver is getting tired, right? And so there's a regulatory change in some cases or in some cases that the markets are just so big, and there's so little innovation that, that new people can come in and do really exciting things. So in 2015, you had a post on career decisions and uh, it greatly influenced me. Um, and it discussed which factors to discuss. Uh, sorry, 
uh, which factors to consider when taking the next step in your career. And near the end, you said if you want to work in tech, you should come to Silicon Valley. The network effects are just so strong. But if you can't, you should go to New York. So now, four years later, do you think this is still true? I think it's very true. And I think it's oddly contrarian to say still. And I don't know why that is. If you look at every other industry, there's industry towns. So, you know, there's Hollywood for movies or for financial centers. There's London and New York and Hong Kong. And you'd never tell somebody, hey, you should really move to Austin. The movie scene there is fine. That's really where you should go to be in Hollywood to make movies, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would just sound ridiculous. And yet in technology, it's very normal now to say that. And it's just incorrect. I think that there's very strong cluster and network effects out here in terms of service providers who can help set up a company, uh, people who've scaled and built them before, um, venture capital that really understands what startups mean and the risk profiles and how to approach them and capitalize them. Um, sales and go to market advice, et cetera. And so I just think it's really still concentrated here. A lot of your first customers are going to be out here if you're a SaaS business or a dev tools business. So I think that's going to continue. And I think the cluster will only get stronger um, unless, you know, San Francisco city governance truly just craters everything. And then maybe everybody moves to Oakland yeah. and hopefully it's still okay. Uh, I do think that the internet has never been bigger. In other words, the internet has continued to compound at 20 to 50% year over year over the last five to 10 years, depending on the, the geo geography that you're in. Which means that um, you can get to real scale in other places where a company that would have been $20 million in revenue is now a $100 million revenue company, and suddenly it's a venture scale business. Yep. And so I'm going to see, I think we're going to see more and more of those distributed around the world. But I think, you know, in terms of true scaled companies, it, you know, the ones that really matter, I still think there's going to be heavy concentration here. And then uh, from the end of the post, I, would, I can assume, but uh, you have explicitly called New York instead of, as other cities. Uh, is that just because New York is necessarily considered like the number two in the United States? I would basically consider the New York the number two in terms of startup formation in the US. Yeah. I think it's still a big gap between here and Silicon Valley. Um, and I should say technology startups. If you're doing a biotech, you know, if you're doing biopharma, Boston may be good, right? Yep. Or um, some other places. Uh, but yeah, I think for tech, New York is probably number two right now. When you see founders uh, that you're excited by, but in a market you're not excited about, by, what advice, and that they're really receptive to, 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 what advice do you have for, for them or what advice do you have for founders generally in terms of picking better markets? So I think uh, I've been wrong on a bunch of stuff. So <laughs> me not liking a market doesn't mean that it's correct. Um, and so often I just tell founders, look, I've been wrong a bunch and you should do what you think is right. Um, in some cases, I think the, 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 the best piece of advice besides that is uh, if you're going to pivot, pivot hard. Don't try and take advantage of the things that you've already built. Be willing to start from a blank slate. Otherwise, you're never going to move outside of the bad areas. Uh, and then lastly, I think if it's a, if it's a repeat founder, I think they often get frozen because they, if they had a good outcome before, they don't want to work on anything that they think will be too small. And then they get kind of stuck, not really starting a business or optimizing for the wrong thing and thinking, Oh, I can only build a billion dollar company in reality again. The biggest companies often start off really non-obvious because if it was obvious, everybody would be doing it. And so to founders themselves, often the biggest things seem kind of not so big at the beginning. Um, if you think about it, starting a company is kind of an act of desperation, right? It's the thing that can truly accelerate your career when you don't have that many other options to accelerate your career. If you're on a massive career track somewhere else and you're really happy with your boss, many people will stick around even if they're very strong-willed founders because that means their boss is giving them space and they're working on interesting things and all the rest. And so I view starting a company a little bit as an act of desperation. 
uh, when you're a first time founder, right? When you're a second time founder, it's sometimes an act of either wanting to have impact or an act of ego. Um, which then means that sometimes you freeze up in terms of worrying that things aren't big enough instead of just saying, this is kind of cool and interesting. Let me try it. Ah, thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 